Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm going to be preaching to you today about the call of Moses. And the scripture I am reading to you is out of Exodus chapter 2. It's just a small part of the entire call narrative. But we're going to lift... Uh, a few passages here just to put this all in context. And then as I speak to you about the call of Moses, we're going to try and make some spiritual application to us today about some of the things he went through. But in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, the scripture says, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now Moses was a fugitive from justice, having fled Egypt because he murdered an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave and then tried to break up a fight between two Hebrews. And his own people were uncertain of him. He was from the upper crust. He was from the other social class. And they feared him and rejected his efforts to settle the dispute. And when they said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? He figured, well, word is all over the kingdom now. And he fled from Egypt and went to a place, the Bible says, is Midian, which would have been across the Sinai Peninsula. There he encounters a group of ladies, seven young ladies, who are coming to the well to water their sheep, and a group of shepherds who are being abusive, and bullies. And Moses has already shown his propensity to want to interfere with wrongdoers and right the wrongs. So he goes to the rescue of the ladies and drives off the uh, shepherds who are preventing them from properly watering their flocks. And in the process, he must have looked like a hero to one of the ladies because he then struck up a relationship with one of them named Zipporah. They went home and told their dad about this handsome young man that came to their rescue, and he said, go bring him here. And one thing led to another. Moses marries Zipporah and gets a job working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. Now, it's the experience of Moses having fled from Egypt and dwelling in Midian that we want to focus on today. And we want to look at Midian metaphorically as a place that if we apply it to ourselves, we had really no intentions of going to. We want to look at at it as a place that by force of our circumstances, it did become our dwelling a crude place where there is no more pampering or luxury. A place where we could very well feel totally abandoned, shelved, put out to pasture. 
Nevertheless, a place that also has the potential to transform us from that non-productive life of painless leisure to a life of productivity for God. And the question is, have you been to Midian lately? I say lately because you might make many trips to Midian in your lifetime. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're on your way. With that in mind, let the Scriptures minister to us today. First of all, let me speak of Midian as a place of preparation. What had to be accomplished in Moses during this time? He was born of Hebrew slaves, but adopted into Pharaoh's family and raised in comfort and ease and luxuriousness. And as a member of the first family, he just didn't know hunger or want. All things were provided for him. But God has this plan for Moses to someday lead the Hebrews out of Egyptian bondage. And he was no good for the task as he was. It's going to take a little work to get Moses to the place where he's ready to be that deliverer. So when Moses flees to Midian, God uses that time to prepare him for what he has designed him to do. First of all, he had to learn to, learn to live a new lifestyle. He was going to have to be hardened for the task at hand. God would have to drive Moses out of that cushy lifestyle in the palace to teach him how to live a life of a nomad. He would go from the palace to living in a tent. He spent the first 40 years of his life pampered in the lap of luxury and opulence there in the royal family of Egypt. He would spend those first 40 years spoiled rotten and the next 40 years undoing all of that. No more soft beds. No more catered banquets. No more unlimited expensive wardrobe. From 40 years in luxury and ease to 40 years working downwind from a herd of sheep. What a stark change. 40 years on what the King James Version calls the backside of the desert. That's the common term you will hear for that. But what it means, and there are other translations that put it in slightly different words, what they all mean is the desert was the remote region. The backside was the remote region of the remote region. It was really out back. And 40 years in this destitute area to gain the skills and the hardness and the mentality it would take to spend the last 40 years of his life leading the Hebrews through the wilderness. So his life was conveniently divided into 40-year segments. And that doesn't necessarily mean ours is like that. The numbers don't necessarily translate into our situation. The percentages don't necessarily translate. But something that does translate is there can be a sudden change in your life at most any time. And sometimes those changes that come into our life feel like what we would describe as being on the backside of the desert. Such a sudden change from what you once had, what you once enjoyed, to now something that you did not elect to go to. And it's difficult to dwell there. And we being the kind of people we are, rather soft. Maybe we're soft Christians. 
If any of you keep up with world news, you know the persecution of Christians is spiking in these days around the world. It's alarming at how fast this is developing around the world and bleeding over into the United States of America. It's only going to get worse, but we're soft. We've lived in a country that has been sympathetic to Christianity and churches and God-centered activities and God and country and patriotism being married to our religion. Nobody has hassled us about that, but it's changing. And because of the kind of country we have lived in and their sympathies to our Christian faith, I think we're soft Christians. But there may be something come into your life that takes you from that ease and requires something more of you than you anticipated you would have to give. But if we're willing to be used of God, you have to be willing to be prepared of God. And preparation is not comfortable. We're not the kind of people who welcome hardship. We like our comfortable surroundings. We become accustomed to convenience. We've almost, because of that, we've almost in Christianity developed an entitlement mentality with God. Lord, we've always had it easy. We deserve to have it easy. Things should not change. But I don't know of any other generation of Christians that would do that. Things could turn rapidly on any generation. He had to learn a different way of living. That can happen in your life. You might have to change your style, your expectations. Maybe your income will change. We don't know what will happen. But are you willing to allow those circumstances to come into your life to make the kind of transformation that you need to make? to be properly used of God. The second thing he had to do is he had to learn a new way of thinking. God had to deprogram him from the Egyptian way and work all of that poison of Egypt and the Egyptian culture out of his system so there could be no sympathies for his hometown, his adopted family, his former friends and acquaintances, when he would go back to Egypt, he could not be partial to those people he once associated with. He would go back in behalf of the people he did not associate with. He would have to learn a new way to think. There could be no allegiance to his home country. And although he was raised in a home that taught him how to despise the Hebrews. He was raised by a people who thought nothing of abusing their slaves for their own comfort and their own profit. Even though Moses was literally bombarded with social class mentality that honored all the Egyptians and treated the Hebrews like animals. Moses would have to be willing to turn on all of that and turn on his upbringing and think of this thing in an entirely different way in order to be used properly of God. God's way of doing things is so different from the way of the world doing things. His way of analyzing things is so opposite and contrary to the way the world analyzes things. And you cannot be effective in your service for God if you bring the world's mentality with you and try and serve God with the world's philosophies and the world's view and the world's understanding. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you start seeing things like God sees it. And that's a process that doesn't happen to you just because you might say a prayer or kneel at the altar or have an emotional experience with God. 
and you get up and you just see the whole world differently, you're going to have to learn how God wants you to think about things in this world. I would say today, anybody that comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is going to have one of the most severe programs of being deprogrammed that we've probably known in our lifetime. It's not that they have been taught in a culture, in a society, to be passive or ignorant of these things. It's that they have been taught to be antagonistic towards the things of God. Brainwashed by the world. And to come to Christ means there has to be a new set of standards for your life. In order to be effective for God, you have to think like God thinks and understand like God understands and adopt the precepts of His Word. And that means you're probably going to, at that point, bring a lot of friction into your relationships with people of this world. Whereas one time you both sat down and you talked the way you talked and you told the kind of stories you told and you did the kind of things you did, suddenly you're not going to be wanting to do those things anymore because you realize God is now retraining your brain. He's teaching you a new way to think. It's vitally important that we get the new mindset. I see too many cases as a pastor where people are reaching out to God for the benefits of salvation, the benefits of forgiveness, the benefits of having their life put back together, but they're not compelled to change the way they think. So if they continue to think the way they used to think, they'll just poison the well again. You have to let God change your mind. We got ourselves into trouble by this way of thinking. When we thought like the world taught us to think, we wrecked our life. When we adopted godless philosophies about how to live a reckless and carefree life, we made a mess of things. You can't bring the same philosophy post-salvation and go back and do it again. That's like what the Bible says, that the dog is returned to his vomit and the hog is returned to the mire. You can't come and get cleaned up and then go back to the hog wallow again. You have to have a transformation of living and a transformation of thinking. doesn't make any difference how you were raised. When we thought like the world taught us to think, it probably became embedded and ingrained in us. Your family raised you that way. Your friends acted like that. And you grew up with very abnormal things that everybody around you told you were normal. God wants to transform that. Old things should pass away. Things that you once thought nothing about become issues in your heart. And this is what happens with people during this transformation process. It's a thing called conviction. And if they hear the preaching of the Word or an explanation of the Word, they hear it and it probably slams them in some aspect of their life and they've got a choice how to react to that. They can either respond by saying, I see where I'm wrong. I feel convicted. I need to fix something. Or they can get offended. And we've seen people do each one, haven't we? Until finally, those who are offended, instead of those who are receptive, end up dropping out, leaving the church, and blaming everybody else for being mean. They're mean down there at that church. They're judgmental at that church. You know, that is one of the cheapest shots that this world uses. If they think they know anything about the Bible, they think they can quote, Thou shalt not judge, and they think that they know what it means, and therefore they're just putting handcuffs on you. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Christianity, the Bible, God's laws are all about judging right and wrong. Christianity is not a neutral thing. We have a set of, of standards that God has given us that we understand what is right and what is wrong. And when we declare what is right, 
When we declare what is wrong and people don't like it, they say, you shouldn't judge. No, we should. We should understand, like people say, be fruit inspectors. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Does it please the Lord? Number three, Moses would have to learn how to identify with the working class rather than the ruling class. He would become one of them on his return trip. And this is how and why some people have such effective ministries. They have walked where other people are walking. They have been through those storms. They have endured the same trials. They understand. They sympathize. I see this happen all the time in my congregation. Somebody is going through a trial, but somebody else who's been through that trial knows how to talk to them, how to minister to them, how to bring comfort. We've had a, a number of people lose loved ones in our church. But it seems as those who have lost their loved one have such a sympathy for those who are losing their loved ones. And they know what to say. And it seems like the ones who are suffering the loss listen because they know that those people understand the pain without them having to describe it. They just know. There have been people who have had certain conditions in their body, be it cancer or heart disease or whatever, that other people have been there and they know and they understand and they sympathize. It is said that Oral Roberts had uh, success in his healing ministry back when he was a healing evangelist because he was healed, tuberculosis when he was young. And for some reason, He had particular success in that area. I guess because he understood. Now, no matter what trial you are going through, you'll find yourself well-equipped to minister to other people who are going through that trial. I've been through some pretty rough wars as a pastor. All of the years of pastoring have not been bad, but many of them have been tremendously difficult and because of that because I know some of the circumstances I have faced there are some ministers that have never faced those circumstances and there's some ministers that have not faced circumstances as bad as the ones I've gone through and there's some that have faced some worse than me those are the ones I seek out those are the ones I want to hear about their survival stories But for those that have not been through the rough waters that I've been through, those are the ones I reach out to. Those are the ones I hear when some minister has just been fricasseed by their congregation. I feel very comfortable and confident in calling them up, no matter how well I know them. And just talking to them because I know what they're going through. I know what it feels like. I know the scriptures that spoke to me during those times. I know the power of God in delivering. I'm effective because I am sympathetic because I've been there and I understand. So for Moses to be effective in ministering to his Hebrew people, he had to learn to live like a Hebrew. He had to go spend 40 years living as a nomad. You can't come out of the palace and be received by those people, believed by those people, or effective in ministry to those people. So he goes away, and he gets hardened in the wilderness. He understands what it means to sleep on the rough ground. He understands what that soft skin from the palace to turn to leather in the weather elements and in the sun. He understands what it means to have to scrape and work for your very existence every day and nothing just given to you. You have to work for it. And after 40 years of living like his people lived, he's now ready to go back with a heart that says, now I understand these Hebrew people. Now I have sympathy for them. 
I have no sympathy for the people in the palace, but I have sympathy for the slaves. And I'm reminded of the missionaries when they go to the foreign lands. They study the culture. They acquaint themselves with the customs of the people they are going to minister to. They learn their language. They dress like them. They eat their food. And oftentimes that's hard for people to learn how to do because we're accustomed to the slop that we eat here in the United States. Ours is good slop. But theirs we don't understand. I've talked to missionaries who have eaten monkey meat. Saw the monkey roasting on the spit, turning in the fire. I was fascinated. I said, how'd you do it? He said, I don't know. It's like eating your own child. There's something emotional about this. Missionaries do it. You know why? Because they want to identify with these people. They have to live like they live to be effective. And most of all, the greatest missionary of all who left his throne in glory and put on the robe of a servant, the attire of a servant, humanity, so that the body would grow tired and Jesus would have to stop his journey and rest for a little bit. He never had to do that in heaven. He never got tired when he was there. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. When he was inflicted with pain here on earth, he would hurt and he would bleed like everybody else bleeds. He never bled in heaven. If he was subjected to harsh conditions, the body responded like our body responded. There was no harsh conditions in heaven. But in order to be the most effective minister to you, to this world, he had to come and be like them. And he did. He came to be like us so we could come to be like him. It was a good exchange. The second point is, this is a place not only of preparation, but it's a place of a calling. This thought came to my mind. It's in times of great excitement and pleasure that we discover our ambitions. But it's on the backside of the desert that we learn our calling. Now, let me put it in some terms that I understand, and then you can make your own application, okay? When I was 15 years old, we started a little quartet because we were inspired by a quartet that we had heard at church camp. So we came home and took all the young boys we had in our church, every one of them, and gave them a part in the quartet or the band, and we began to sing. And as a result of that, we got to sing at a lot of different uh, uh, arenas and concerts. We were the warm-up group sometimes for professional groups. Uh, We entered the Blackwood Brothers contest down in Kansas City and won that. We were no good, but we were were steady. And and because of that, you're going to have certain things fall your way from time to time. Had a great time. But then I started getting in my blood. And when I graduated high school, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I was enrolled in vocational school. I was taking auto mechanics. I went through the first year where they go through the engine and the, and the uh, uh, well, mainly the engine. Uh, the second year is transmission and driveline. But uh, I loved mechanics. It just, I'm, I'm mechanically inclined. 
my instructor kept calling up dealerships and, I mean, calling me up because he, dealerships would call him and say, we have an opening for a mechanic. Can you recommend anybody? He said, here's my number one student. I'll get a hold of him. And I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a mechanic for my, life, for my entire life because I wanted to be a gospel singer. As a matter of fact, when we had our senior banquet for the high school, and they went around the table and asked every senior what they wanted to do. Uh, I was hearing people that had their life all together. I want to be a, an attorney. I want to. Be, I had a good friend of mine that ever since I, we were young, he kept telling me he wanted to be an attorney. Today he's an attorney. He knew what he wanted. I want to uh, uh, be a teacher. I want to be. And they all had something they wanted to be. I I didn't know. They came to me and I said, I, you know, I either want to be a mechanic or a gospel singer. You can see how they relate. So shortly after I graduated, I was devouring the, the Southern Gospel Music uh, publications, the magazines, the newspaper, an old newspaper called Singing News, and it'd come every month, and I'd just read it, and all my palms would sweat, and I just my heart would race, and I'd read what was going on and what groups were going to be in the area, and I'd want to go listen to them. Then a little group in there said uh, they were looking for a lead singer. <clears throat> and I thought, you know what? This is my break. I want to go and try out for this group. So I told my parents, I said, I, I, I want to. Well, the, the, the group called me and said they acknowledged my application. Could I come to Nashville and try out for them? Oh, I was so excited. I was so excited. Here, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. And just before I left, uh, Mom and Dad blessed their hearts. They had their own way of doing things. They were so stuck in their way, kind of like I'm getting. So just before I take off to go to Nashville, uh, this is like the first time in two or three years that, that I, they had pulled this on me. But Dad, you know, he's the authority in the house. I'm still eating his food, living under his house, sleeping in his bed. So what Dad says, you just did it. And so he says, well, Mom... Give him a haircut before he goes. Now, how many of you know where this is going? How many of you know if I say homemade haircut, what, where this is going? And mom only had one style of cutting hair. And when she did it, there was a big gap cut right here and a long strand of hair here, and you had to swoop it over to cover the gap. That was the good part of it. The rest of it went downhill from there. So here I just about had my hair shaped up and grown out to where it's beginning to look like normal people. And Dad thought, Mom, give him a haircut before he goes. Don't worry, Dad. I'll grab a haircut on the way down. No, no. You're not going to spend any money. Give him a haircut, Mom. Now, I'm thinking in retrospect. Dad really had a mind to sabotage this. I can't prove it. But when I'm headed down there, looking like I just got in, fight, in a fight with a loose electric razor and lost, my confidence is shot. I hit Nashville, and... I see the talent down there. There are people driving cabs in Nashville that have more talent than me. There are people down there waiting tables in Nashville that have more talent than me. And I get in there, and I've got this hickey-looking haircut. And I'm surrounded by talent everywhere, people waiting to get into the industry. And this, this group says, you look a little nervous. Why don't you just travel with us for a few days? Calm down, then we'll try you out. And it went terrible. It went terrible. And they finally sit down with me after I try it out for them. And they said, well, it just doesn't look like it's quite going to work. And I came back home so defeated. Now, see, in, in the hour of my, of my enthusiasm, that's whenever I discovered my ambition. I loved to be in the concert arena. I loved to be on stage singing the gospel and preaching between songs. I loved it. And my ambitions became apparent during that time. That's what I wanted to do. 
And I came back home and I felt totally rejected. I wasn't even able to give them a sample of, of what I had the potential of doing. I just, I totally fell apart. And I came home and I felt like a backside of a desert. What do I do with my life now? Seeing a gospel singer's out, I guess it's mechanic. It's the only thing I had is the alternative. Until during that time on the backside of the desert and trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? Seemed like so many kids have their act together. What am I going to do? It was during that time I got my calling. It wasn't when things were going great and I was all excited and enthused and inspired and, oh, that's what I want to do. It's when I was going through one of the roughest times as a young man trying to figure out who I am and where am I going that God expressed his calling to me. See, Midian, the backside of the desert, to you and me is that place when you're going through that rough time where you're not talking about your ambitions, but you're open to hear what God wants you to do, and you start hearing his voice. When you're away from the noisy world, that's when you hear God. When you're away from the bright lights of your ambitions, that's when you hear from God. Moses and his sheep in the middle of nowhere is where God chooses to speak to him. And Moses is out there watching the sheep and who knows what's going through his mind. He can't, he can't easily forget where he came from and where he is. The contrast is too powerful. So he must think of that quite often. What am I doing here? I was the son of Pharaoh. What am I doing here? I don't even have my own sheep. They belong to my father-in-law. I work for my father-in-law. What am I doing here? Put out to pasture. Shelved. Forgotten. Forsaken. And then he sees a bush that is on fire. Probably not a common occurrence. I suppose a lightning strike or something could perhaps start a fire. But it's not common. Not unheard of, but not common. So here, anything, when it's just you and the sheep, can be entertainment. You understand? So here's a bush that's burning. Well, let's watch it for a while. Till he realizes it's not being consumed. It burns and burns and burns. Now he's really interested. And he says to himself, I like how the Bible records Moses talking to himself. You know, you can almost hear him in the King James, Behold, I will turn aside and see the bush that doth burn and is not consumed. So here he is, he's talking to himself. They record, I, here's what he said, 21st century. I think I'll check it out. He goes over here and he looks at the bush. And he just can't understand. It burns, but it's not burning up. This part I'm really fascinated by. While he's looking at the bush, the bush talks to him. Now it's really getting interesting. And he's looking and the bush says, Moses, Moses. The bush knows his name. What would you say if you saw a bush that talked to you and called you by name? First of all, I'm calling the National Enquirer. We're going to get a scoop on this. What does Moses say? Do you, have you read the story? What does Moses say? Moses, Moses. He says, here I am. Like the bush is taking roll or something. Moses, here. I think that's a very odd response. And then God reveals himself. Moses, first of all, this is a holy place. And in respect of that, take your shoes off. And then Moses hid his face. The place of your calling is a holy place. Always remember that as a holy place. 
that place where you've been driven into that, that, that area of your life where you're not sure where you're going, not sure what you're doing, not sure what your purpose is, it's a holy place. Don't desecrate it with your nasty attitudes and your blasphemies to God. It's a holy place. Recognize it at holy so God can proceed with communicating with you. And then God reveals his plan. And he tells Moses. Here Moses is 80 years old. His life split half and half between Egypt and the desert. And here's where God reveals to Moses, here's my plan for you. His life is two-thirds over. Now I said the proportions, the ratio, the percentages, the numbers don't necessarily directly apply to us as they did to Moses. But his life was two-thirds over. Translate that to your life. That might be in the 50s to 60s. Your life is two-thirds over. And if God can take Moses when his life is two-thirds over and finally reveal his purpose, he can speak to you at any time of your life. I don't care if you're just beginning your career or you feel like you're halfway through or if you're retired. It doesn't make any difference. God can reveal a purpose to you. That maybe it's been building your whole life or maybe it's been taking a while for you to cooperate with what God wants you to do. But I think understanding that God can bring a new direction and a new calling into your life right now. It's not too late. You should not think that God should have done this 40 years ago. His timing is perfect. Respect that as a holy place and listen to God and say, Now, God, what would you have me to do? And God speaks to Moses. And he reiterates and acknowledges the circumstances that Moses knows took place in Egypt. He understands God acknowledges the slavery of the children of Israel. And he tells Moses, Now, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh and you're going to bring my people out of Egypt. And there's the revelation of God's purpose for Moses. This is huge. This is something beyond anything Moses ever could have imagined. An 80-year-old Moses finally understands God's purpose for his life. And it took 40 years in the desert as a mere shepherd for Moses to be ready for his calling. Number three, it's a place of self-discovery. Here's the points I want you to understand about this. The first thing is in this place of self-discovery is you might be astounded to see what God can do with what you have in your hand. We beat ourselves up thinking we don't have enough talent. We're not good enough. We look at all these other people around here that are just in, endowed with, with good looks and talent, and, and they sure could be used of God. What can I do? I can't do anything. I don't know. What do you got in your hand? And it doesn't make any difference how mundane that is. What God wants to prove to you is not what you bring to the table that matters. God can use anything you have to make you effective in serving him. What do you got? Well, for Moses, it was nothing but a staff that he used in the duties of shepherding the sheep. What are you going to do with a staff? Moses has to wonder, what can I do? You want me to go bonk Pharaoh in the head or what? What is this about? What good is it? And God says to Moses, throw it down. He did. It turns to a snake. That's the easy part. Then God says, now pick it up. I like the throwing down part. I don't care for picking the snake back up. But it's a thing about trusting God that he knows what he's doing. Moses reached out and grabbed the snake by the tail. And when God tells you to pick a snake up, you had better know it was God that told you. And it turns back into the staff. Moses' first objection when he hears that God wants to send him back to Egypt 
is he says, why me? Who am I? How about a moment of honesty? Have you ever given God that response? God wants you to do something. Have you ever said, why me? Choose somebody else. Who am I? I have nothing. And God responds to Moses' objection. He says, I'll be with you. And as a sign that I'm with you, one of these days, I'm telling you, you and the people are going to return to this mountain. You're going to worship me. And when you stand on this mountain worshiping me as a free people, you're going to know that I told you the truth. That'll be your sign. You've got a promise. The second objection is, when they ask me who sent me to deliver them, he's, he's, he's not sure who this is. He hasn't been raised understanding God. He's talking to this bush. When he says, how are they going to believe me? When I go to them and tell them, I am here to rescue you, and they said, who sent you? And I tell them, a bush. I don't think this is going to sell very good. And God said, you tell them, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Tell them I am hath sent you. Now they'll understand that. Very good. Now they're on a first name basis. You're Moses, you're I am. And then Moses re- objects again. And he said, what if they don't believe me? That's whenever God shows him the staff trick. Furthermore, he says to him, now place your hand inside your cloak and pull it out. And when he did, it was leprous, white and leprous. And he said, place it in your cloak and pull it back up. And it was restored to completely well. Now, if the staff speaks to us about God's ability to use whatever you have, and you can still be effective in the kingdom simply because it's not of you, it's of God. Then the hand in the cloak speaks to us about another very, very important thing in answering the call. And that is we have to recognize we are nothing and God is everything. We have to recognize we don't come bringing our righteousness and therefore God is going to use us. We don't come bringing our perfection. God has to reveal to us that in in the final analysis, somewhere deep inside of you is a lot of ugliness. And we have to understand that. I'm ugly inside. It's hideous inside of me. There is a fallen nature in there. There is a warring of the flesh against the spirit. I've never been able to obtain that place, that station in life where I have no temptations, where I can't fall, I can't fail. So God, why me? And sometimes that's the card the devil plays against you when he says you have no business trying to serve God because this is what I have against you. Well, if it's in the past, it's forgiven. If it's in the current, it's handled by the blood. You have to understand there is corruption in you. God shows you the leprosy and you have to work every day serving him, realizing how imperfect you are. Because you're not effective for God by being perfect. You're effective for God by serving a perfect God. That's it. We have to be fully ready for service to God by understanding I don't bring any virtue. I don't bring any righteousness to the table. The only thing I do is find my righteousness through Jesus Christ, not of myself. And when Satan tells you you're not good enough, To do anything of value for the Lord. You remember God isn't looking for your goodness. He will supply the goodness. He will supply the righteousness. He only wants your willingness. For somebody to say Jesus use me. You might be surprised. At that ugliness. In this place of self discovery. That you find inside of yourself. You might be discouraged by the ugliness you find inside of yourself. You should not be dissuaded 
God can use you. Number three, in this place of self-discovery, you might be surprised. You might be surprised to learn you cannot win an argument with God. It doesn't happen. God wins every debate. Moses tried as he would to wiggle out of God's plan. Suggesting there were other people better than him didn't work. Suggesting that the people would never believe him didn't work. God provided him miraculous signs to convince the people. Moses tried to downplay his own importance. But Moses had been raised and groomed for this hour. And so as a final pathetic effort to get out from underneath God's appointment and God's calling, Moses finally says, I don't talk very well. He is scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point. And at this point, if you read the story, this is the turning point. When the Bible says, now God is angry. You can only push God so far. He said, I don't talk very good. And God said, who gave you your mouth? Who makes people deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Me. I made your mouth. I made your vocal cords. I made your lips. I made your brain. I can make your perfect speech. Moses said, can you just get somebody else? And God in his anger said, take Aaron. Now this could have gone on infinite. God's always got a response. He's not going to lose an argument. You might as well surrender now. You're not going to win the argument. Go get Aaron. He can talk. Any more objections? Moses ran out. He couldn't think of anything else. He finally says, I give up. And God says, now you get it. Just give up. Quit fighting. Have you ever wondered if you have vexed God to the point of making his burn, him burn in his anger because of your reluctance, because of being argumentative? Have you repeatedly told God no? Have you made excuses? Are you still refusing to surrender to his will? Are you testing God with all of your ridiculous excuses? You just can't win an argument with God. You cannot present one single objection that will stump God. He has an answer for every excuse you have. So, friend, there's nothing left to do. Just get with the program. Just do it. Everybody say, just do it. I want you to look at that person in your brain that you're thinking of right now that is hedging. And if your face pops up, that's okay. I want you to say it one more time. Just do it. No excuses. Worship team, come.